The Durable Restoration Company is a proud sponsor of Berguin Wright Presents. At Durable Restoration, they specialize in exterior historic restoration services. All of their craftspeople and artisans are employees and trained in-house using traditional materials, tools, and techniques that are tried and true. They have a long list of historic landmarks across the nation that they are proud to have helped preserve for future generations. For all your upcoming restoration needs, contact Durable Restoration at DurableRestoration.com or call toll-free at 1-877-340-9182. How far would you go to rescue your loved one from the clutches of certain death? Would you ride horseback through the night across the largely undeveloped colony of North Carolina, unsure of what danger lies around every corner? Would you race into the crossfire of a bloody battle, unaware of whether one of the bodies littering the battlefield in front of you or the person you were too late to save? Are you willing to do this? because Polly Slocum was, at least according to one enduring legend from the Cape Fear's revolutionary era. There's something timeless about an act of love that transcends even the most dangerous circumstances. But even love has its limits. And in hindsight, the stories we're told may be more romantic than reality. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Berguin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore, a podcast series telling the stories of North Carolina's Cape Fear region through the history of one of its oldest historic sites. My name is Hunter Ingram. I'm the Assistant Museum Director for the Berguin Wright House and Gardens here in Wilmington, and I'm your host for this podcast. This season on Berguin Wright Presents we are cracking open the essential local history text, Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear Region, published in 1956 by famed historian Louis T. Moore. Each episode, we take a chapter from the book and interrogate the fact and fiction of that story as told by Lewis. What's true, and what's fabrication for the sake of a good story? This season, we're going to get to the bottom of why these stories have survived for centuries in some cases, and what they say about the Cape Fear today. This episode, we're interrogating an infamous act of love that took place in the opening year of the American Revolution. Polly Slocum was a housewife whose husband had only recently gone off to war in February 1776, when she had a premonition that his life was in danger. She saw his death in battle, and so she did the only thing she could do. She raced off into the darkest night to find him, not knowing he was about to walk into one of the most pivotal battles in the Revolutionary War. On the other side of her 60-plus mile journey, 
Polly found the carnage of war, stopping to tend to wounded soldiers before finding her husband safe and sound. It's a story steeped in heroics and defined by a happy ending, even though the war had only just begun. Like most local history books, Lewis T. Moore prominently features Polly's story among his chapters. But who was this woman who risked her life to save her husband from a danger she had only seen in a dream? What did her arduous, so-called midnight ride entail? And is it possible to chase down the truth of her legend 200 years later? We'll answer those questions and more on this episode of Berguin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore. Joining the show today is Chris E. Fonville Jr., a local historian, professor emeritus at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and the author of several books, including the most recent of his, More Curious Tales from Old Wilmington and the Lower Cape Fear. Chris, thank you for being here. Well, it's great to be back with you, uh, Hunter. It's been a while. It has. And, you know, you and I have been podcasting about local history for about five years now, between our show here and one that I did previously called Cape Fear on Earth. And it's helped inspire, we've inspired each other in many ways, it sounds like. And so More Curious Tales and this show have a lot of similar DNA, a lot of uh, similar missions. And so what is this series of Curious Tales that you are hunting down with your books? Well, the first volume, Curious Tales, which came out two years ago, was my exploration of urban legends and myths. But I wanted to get to the truth of them. Uh, every one of these tales has an element of truth. Something gave birth to them. But what's the true story behind them? That's what I was interested in. And the book proved to be so popular that I decided to keep the series going. But again, inspired by our conversations over the years, and we have been inspired by the work of Lewis T. Moore, Stories yeah. Old and New of the Cape Fear region. And that's what the basis of this show is this season. And so it's this big circle of, of conversation with these stories. And one of the ones we're going to talk about today is something that I've written about before. We've talked about in the past before, Lewis T. Moore wrote about, and it is one of the chapters in More Curious Tales. And so I felt it was appropriate that we dive back into the story of Polly Slocum. Now, one thing I like about this story is it is incredibly patriotic around the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge. It's such a pivotal clash uh, at the beginning of the war. But it does have this element of legend, a midnight ride, as they call it, of Polly Slocum. And the story goes, as I mentioned in our intro, that she is a, a woman whose husband goes off to war. And she has some type of nightmare or premonition or dream that he will die in battle. And she rides off into the night dozens of miles across the undeveloped North Carolina colony, and she finds him at the Battle of Moores Creek Bridge. But the the thing about this legend is it's a bit easier to parse some of the things that may or may not be true, and, and I know you've done even more of that more recently with More Curious Tales. So before we kind of get into the legend, what do we know about Polly Slocum and her husband Ezekiel? Well, not a lot, unfortunately. We know that she was born Mary Hooks, endearingly called Polly by her family and friends. Which I actually looked up one time and it 
the the jump from Mary to Polly is that a um, often cited nickname of Mary is Molly, and then it goes to Polly. Um, I don't always make that jump in my head, but I think that's interesting because you will see accounts of this as Mary Slocum or Polly Slocum. That, so that's right. Yeah. Uh, she was born in Bertie County, North Carolina, in February of 1760. And when she was about 10 years old, her family moved southward into Dobbs County, which is now part of Wayne County or Johnston County. And um, so she came of age there. In 1771, her mother passed away. Her father, uh, Thomas, six years later, married Susanna Slocum, recently widowed from John Slocum II. So John Slocum, one of his sons, was Ezekiel Slocum, who was already of age and inherited some of his recently deceased father's property. So in effect, uh, Polly and Ezekiel were step-siblings by marriage. And then they got married in their teenage years, well, family lore has it that they were married at the age of 18, which would have been the summer of 1778, because Ezekiel was born in June of 1760. He was actually younger than Polly. He married an older woman. And uh, that's about all that we know about their early years together. Now, how did they come to interact with this story? Because as we get close to the revolution, where are they leaning in this side of the war? Do they side with the Patriots here locally, or are they more loyalist? Well, they side with the Patriots, mm-hmm. who are technically Whigs, because the loyalists considered themselves Patriots, too. Mm-hmm. True. Um, semantics. Semantics, that's <laughs> right. So uh, they sided with the Patriots, uh, but even a lot of loyalists were forced into siding with the Patriots. Mm-hmm. They were forced to take an oath of allegiance, particularly after the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge, which ended loyalist sentiment for many years, as you know. But um, other than that, we we don't know a lot about his Revolutionary War record. Now, the story is that he was a lieutenant of Rangers. He was with Richard Caswell's militia, came out of the Newburn District, and fought at the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge. As you know, she had a premonition or a nightmare that her husband had been killed and then rode in the middle of the night, February 26th and early morning hours of February the 27th, to reach Morris Creek Bridge to see about her husband. And she reached there in the mid-morning, hours after the battle. And uh, as you know, um, Ezekiel had not uh, been killed. And uh, she reportedly tended to wounded soldiers and finally met up with Ezekiel. But Richard Caswell, the commander of uh, militia forces, and uh, probably the commander of the forces at the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge, made no mention of her in his post-battle report, which is interesting. Which is interesting because in the accounts that we have today, she is a presence in this. She's interacting with these named people. And so it's, it's odd that she wouldn't have made it into some type of account at the time. I want to read something, though, because in Lewis T. Moore's account of this, he cites that his understanding of the story came directly from Polly Slocum, that it's from her own writings about herself. And his quote is, and this is from her, supposedly, quote, the men all left on Sunday morning. More than 80 went from this house with my husband. I slept soundly and quietly that night, 
and worked hard all the next day. I went to bed at the usual time and could not sleep soundly. I had a dream. I saw distinctly a body wrapped in my husband's guard cloak, bloody, dead, and others dead and wounded on the ground around him. I saw them plainly and distinctly. I uttered a cry and sprung to my feet on the floor. Now at that point in the story, she basically leaves her child with an enslaved worker that works with them, Mm -hmm. a, a woman, a black woman, and rides off into the night. Now Lewis T. Moore says that she rode 125 miles in 40 hours. That is impressive for 1776 on horseback. Very impressive. He got that story from Elizabeth Ellett's The Women of the American Revolution that was published in 1848. She was a New York State poet, essayist, and friend of Edgar Allan Poe, by the way. And um, her grandfather allegedly had fought in the Continental Army, and she got interested in producing a feminine side of the American Revolution. And from 1836 until the book was published, actually in two volumes, she collected stories by interviewing uh, ladies, white women, she intentionally ignored African-American women, white women of the Revolutionary War era or their children, and looked in the records of the New York Historical Society and compiled enough material for two volumes of Women in the American Revolution. And she told the stories of uh, leading ladies like Martha Washington and Abigail Adams and Mercy Otis Warren. But she also collected many stories of lesser-known women like Polly Slocum, whose story would have been lost had it not been for Elizabeth Ellet. Now, people in the gay fear would have gotten, if if they had not read that two-volume set by Elizabeth Ellet in the late 1840s, they would have read about it in the local newspaper, the Wilmington Tri-Weekly Commercial in 1849. There was an excerpt of the Polly Slocum story. And then in 1851, uh, John Wheeler, I'm sorry, 1854, John Wheeler produced his North Carolina history, and he copied verbatim the story from Elizabeth Ellet. And that's how it became such a big story in the Tar Heel State. And from that point on, you know, Poets wrote odes to her, newspaper men uh, wrote laudatory articles about her, teachers taught, uh, you know, the, the great feat, uh, the bravery and the courage and the devotion to her husband and to her country that Polly Slocum had demonstrated. And from that point on, of course, her star rose. She became the stuff of legends. Yeah. I mean, Louis T. Moore, he calls her one of North Carolina's greatest heroes. It all is traced back to those tellings in the 1840. Is that the earliest that we know that this story is told to the public? That's the earliest that it was told, Yeah, uh, that it was published at least. Polly died in 1836, 10 years before Elizabeth Ellett even began researching her book. Ezekiel died in 1840. So where did Elizabeth Ellett get that story? Certainly not from Polly. I found one account that said that she got it from someone who was intimate with Polly Slocum. But that person is unidentified. Now, in the future, some historian or genealogist may discover who that person is. But even then, the information is secondhand uh, and thus less reliable. That's the key to a lot of the stories that we talk about. When Louis T. Moore is telling these stories in 1956 with stories old and new, he is recounting all of these. These are not firsthand knowledge. And I said that in our prologue that he's, he's up front in his own book forward that 
these stories are ones that he is telling from people he heard them from, from grandparents and ancestors and all this stuff. Do you, through all this research, and, and you've talked about it more recently in promotion of the book, do you believe this story is true? I, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll cite Claude Moore, an antiquarian from Turkey, North Carolina. He believed that Polly Slocum did make a midnight ride, just not to the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge. That it was more likely to the Battle of Rockfish Creek that occurred in August of 1781. And that would have made more sense logistically. Uh, it would have been about a 50-mile uh, ride on horseback from their home. Then in Wayne County, Dobbs County was split in 1779 into Wayne County, Johnston County. So now the Slocum Plantation uh, which was near the uh, modern-day community of Dudley in Wayne County. It would have been about a 50-mile horseback ride to the Battle of Rockfish Creek uh, near present-day Wallace. Problem is that we don't have a, a Patriot Order of Battle. Uh, we do know that Ezekiel, who did uh, join uh, the, the, uh, the American Army, the North Carolina Militia, not in 1776. At the time of the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge, he would have been only 15 years old. And North Carolina law required that every young man be at least 16 to join the militia. Uh, So there's one crack in the authenticity of this story. But he did join the North Carolina militia in 1780, and he did fight with Richard Caswell. Then Colonel, uh, I'm sorry, General Richard Caswell was a colonel at the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge, and they fought at the Battle of Camden, South Carolina, in August of 1780. Then Ezekiel returns to North Carolina. He receives an honorable discharge, but in 1781, he uh, he joins the uh, American Army again and uh, with the North Carolina militia, and he's responsible for suppressing loyalist activities in his home region, which would have been... Wayne County and Duplin County and Lenore and, and Johnston counties. So was he at the Battle of Rockfish Creek in 1781? We don't know. And the, the problem with all of this, Hunter, as you know, is that uh, Elizabeth Ellett's work, while it was considered uh, probably her most prominent work uh, in history, in large part because it looks at, um, it's, it's, it's a gender study in effect. So it does look at the women's side of the American Revolution. But she doesn't cite any of her sources. There are no references. There's no documentation. A footnote would have been helpful in this moment. Where did the material come from? What are her sources? And the same thing is true, as you've pointed out in all of your podcasts, that Louis T. Moore's, these are just stories. Yeah. Right. These are recitations. There is a high degree of storytelling in Lewis T. Moore's. And I love the stories. Oh, I love them too. And I used to tell my students, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. And we shouldn't. I mean, and and we've said it time and time again on the show that Lewis T. Moore wrote down these stories and that's how we're able to talk about them today. Now, he is in good company because a lot of people write about this story. This is something that people took pride in in this area. But as you can see about uh, how old Ezekiel would have been, we even talked about earlier they got married, but it's after this battle, correct? Technically, in 1778? Well, we don't know. Family lore has it that got married when they were 18. So mm-hmm. that would have been no earlier than after June of 1778 when exactly. Ezekiel was born. So she was only, she was barely 16 at the battle, uh, at the time of the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, while a horse could have galloped and cantered and, and walked 
from their home in Wayne County, or I'm sorry, in Dobbs County at the time of the battle, to Morris Creek Bridge, which was 65 miles away, um, navigating North Carolina roads uh, in the 18th century. Or lack thereof. Or roads. lack thereof. I mean, it's, right. Yeah. With no um, lights and signs. And yeah. how did she know where to go? Even the Loyalist and Patriot armies didn't know where the battle was going to be fought until they fought it. Exactly. So how did she know where it was going to be fought? And the element of surprise was helpful for the Patriots at that time because they used thick fog on that morning. And so there's already a bit of a distortion in the weather. And there's there's a portion of this story that she meets some women and children on the road and they mm-hmm. like point her in the direction. And so she's interacting with people. There's just a high degree of detail to it that makes it one of those stories where it's like, this is so crazy, this is so brave, this is so heroic, it has to be true. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I think propels a lot of these stories that encourage people to not dig a bit deeper. They think all of these details, they must be, because she interacted with these people, so those people must have told this story to their family, and these people must have told their story, and all of this stuff, it reinforces this story even if the facts don't. But it's not just stories because Moores Creek National Battlefield, this area's only national battlefield, North Carolina's national battlefield, it has her and Ezekiel's graves there. Mm -hmm. And so what do we know about how Moores Creek actually honors this story today? Well, um, first of all, North Carolinians wanted to believe this story. And long before there were repositories like the North Carolina uh, State Archives and Perkins Library at Duke and the Southern Historical Collection at Chapel Hill, people relied on tradition, oral history, um, for their history. And uh, so you can see how these things were sort of perpetuated. But, uh, yeah, the story was part of the historical landscape for 125 years. People wanted to believe the story of a brave young woman with love and devotion to her husband and to her country would be willing to make such a sacrifice to ride a 130 miles round trip in the middle of the night to get to the battlefield to succor her husband and his comrades after the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge. I mean, it's, it's the stuff of American legends. So they wanted to believe it. And I can't tell you the number of people that I have talked to who grew up in Wayne County, near the old Slocum Plantation, who said, oh yeah, I mean, it was just accepted as gospel uh, in our younger years. Um, so as Moore's Creek was transformed into a, a, a military park, mm-hmm and now a national military battlefield since 1926, the association, the Morris Creek Monumental Association, which morphed into the Morris Creek National Battlefield Association, a friend support group, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they were responsible for erecting the memorials and monuments and statues at Morris Creek. And there had been commemorations of the battle dating back to 1856, which would have been the 80th anniversary of the battle. And then, of course, the Civil War and Reconstruction interrupted a lot of those activities. But 1876, there was the 100th anniversary of the battle. And uh, since 1899, with the exception of a few years, uh, the pandemic, uh, World War II. And um, they have held annual commemorations the last weekend of February every single year. And, of course, 
a major part of that story early on was the ride of Polly Slocum. So the DAR, the Colonial Dames, really pushed to have the remains of Polly and Ezekiel uh, exhumed from their original grave site in Wayne County. As early as 1896, the graveyard was in disrepair. The graves were unkept. The family had moved on. The plantation had, uh, had transformed from agriculture to complete abandonment. And so uh, there was uh, a call for the ladies of Wayne County to do something, either um, restore the, the cemetery or better yet, you know, move them to Morris Creek. And as Morris Creek became recognized by the first North Carolina state legislature, but then the North Carolina, or, or the uh, federal government as an important battle in American history, then uh, there was a movement to move the remains over to the Morris Creek battlefield. And that finally happened in, uh, well, first of all, in 1907, the Morris Creek Monumental Association erected, as you know, the first memorial to women of the American Revolutionary War. And this was dedicated to women of the Lower Cape Fear for their devotion and fidelity and sacrifice during the troublesome times, 1775 to 1781. And this beautiful marble and granite memorial stands about 16 feet high. There's a granite base that's inscribed on four sides, testing to the sacrifice of the women of the revolution from the lower cave fear. And then above that is this beautiful marble statue of a lady long curls and she's dressed in a Greco-Roman style dress and she's holding a wreath of laurel. And on the north side of the granite base is an inscription attesting to the Polly Slocum story. And Polly's patriots actually came to refer to this memorial, which was erected in August of 1907, as the Slocum Monument. Uh, so that became a part of the commemorative landscape as early as 1907. And then in 1929, that's when the remains were exhumed from their plantation graveyard or cemetery and then moved to Morse Creek. And so they are reinterred at the base of this monument that is known as the Slocum Monument. You can go out there today and you can not only see it, but you see it etched literally in stone. I mean, you know, regardless of how true it is, it is something that was accepted as part of our Revolutionary War identity in this mm -hmm. area. As I said at the beginning, it's incredibly patriotic that she would not only ride into battle, but she's riding in a way for love. She's riding to save her husband. Whether it's true or not, do you think people at this point, do you think they care if it's true? Or do you think that the mere association with something like this to Moores Creek, to this area is is really something to be proud of. I think that it can exist as both, at least in my opinion. Mm -hmm. No historians, no serious historians, believe the story is true and have not since the bicentennial. John Baxton Flowers, who was from Wayne County and grew up believing the story, uh, then an uh, archivist with the State Archives in Raleigh was the first to debunk it. Uh, he looked at it very, very closely and uh, then just uh, refuted the whole thing. And perhaps predictably, the colonial dames and the DAR uh, you know, pushed back. Yeah. And um, 
admonished him for his foolhardy findings. Uh, truth can be a hard sell sometimes. Yeah. But then others, uh, Tom Byrd, who was also from Wayne County, and um, and others have come. Ken Dilda, who used to teach at uh, Mount Olive University, they've all come forward and said, you know, this was a great story, but it, it, it's simply not true. What are their key reasons for it not being true? Did they ever find evidence that it's just like irrefutable? Well, uh, we've pointed out some of them. Yeah, the, the dates, the, the, things like the that. The ages of Ezekiel, for example, the age of Ezekiel, uh, for example, only 15 at the time of the battle. Mm-hmm. There's The Revolutionary War pension records absolutely prove that he did not join the North Carolina militia until April of 1780. So there is no evidence that he fought at the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge. Let alone would want to be so visibly seen when his wife storms onto the battlefield. <laughs> if he's a tag right. along, you want to you wanna be a bit more concealed than that. Absolutely. So there's that. And in 1810, oh, and the other thing is that, you know, she claimed that after spending all night tending to the wounded soldiers and obviously spending some time with Ezekiel, probably shortly uh, after dawn or early in the morning, she got on horseback and rode back to her home in Dobbs County. Now, Ezekiel and Colonel Caswell both beseeched her to remain long enough that they could have uh, assigned a, a military escort. And she refused, saying, they can't keep up with me. Again, you know, this is something beyond the call of duty for yeah. a lady of the yeah. revolution. And so she rode back home and allegedly, according to Elizabeth Ellett and Louis T. Moore, when she got there, she was greeted by her young son. Well, they only had one son. They had three children. And the second child was Jesse. Their first child, Sarah, was born in 1776. So, but they were not even married yet, supposedly. But she, Polly said that when she got back to the plantation, her son ran to greet her. Well, her son Jesse was not even born until 1780, four years after the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge. So, there's uh, that against it. And then in 1810, Jesse, then serving as a Federalist congressman in the uh, House of Representatives uh, in Washington, was approached by Thomas Henderson, who was publisher and editor of the Raleigh-based North Carolina Star. Henderson asked Slocum to provide a brief account about the history of Wayne County during the American Revolutionary War. And he, he said, well, nothing of consequence really happened other than Cornwallis's troops when they marched through the county en route to Yorktown, Virginia in 1781, they caused some disturbances uh, and uh, the loyalists rose up to support him. Uh, But other than that, nothing really happened. Now, wait a minute. Slocum is afforded the opportunity to talk about his father's service in the North Carolina militia and better yet, the history of her mom, who was a stay-at-home revolutionary mother, Whereas some women went off with the armies to serve as support personnel, Polly Slocum stayed at home and raised her children. And here was her son with the opportunity to talk about this daring feat that she allegedly made in 1776. 
And he said nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's the kind of story that you tell people in your family. It's Absolutely. the kind of thing to be proud of. It's the kind of action they build monuments for in, in this case. And Well, in her case, they did. They did. That's what right. I'm saying. And so, because people wanted to believe the story. And I don't did. think now it doesn't really matter no. whether it's true or not. Yeah. Um, it's such a great story. And um, the story itself provides an insight into how we remember history. And it's how a lot of people even know of Moores Creek. You know, Moores Creek is in this area. A lot of people come here and they love going to Moores Creek National Battlefield. I love going out there. It's, it's a beautiful site. But a lot of people don't always pay the attention to it. They should. But if they hear about this rousing heroic act from a woman to her husband, whether future or current, it's something that attracts attention. And so... I think Moore's Creek would probably tell you they're glad people were telling this story because it gave Moore's Creek Bridge a, an emotional core in a way. Uh, well, well put. You know, here's Moore's Creek Bridge, the first pitched engagement in North Carolina during the American Revolutionary War. It was a patriot victory over loyalists who were trying to, as you know, link up with incoming British regulars for an invasion of North Carolina by way of the Cape Fear River Valley to be led by Generals Cornwallis and, and Clinton and the last royal governor of North Carolina, Josiah Martin. And they would restore royal authority in North Carolina. And this battle, which happened in the early morning hours of February 27th, 1776, only lasted a matter of minutes, but it had such a tremendous impact in that um, it suppressed loyalist activity it encouraged patriots to join the militia and continental forces and support the revolutionary cause. But more than that, it led the North Carolina Provincial Congress meeting for the fourth time in Halifax, North Carolina, uh, in April 1776, to pass unanimously the Halifax Resolves, which was the first written statement in support of the Revolutionary War of any of the 13 colonies. And that date, of course, is so important in our state's history that it is emblazoned on our state flag to this day. So Morris Creek was a tremendously important battle, so much so that when the United States War Department assumed control of the park in 1926, North Carolina deeded 30 acres of the battlefield to the federal government, it is now in the hands of the War Department. Today it would be the Department of Defense, mm-hmm. War Department in those days. But in assuming control of the battlefield, the United States government is essentially saying the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge is one of the most important engagements in American history. Now, there was a movement, as you know, after World War One, Allied victory, automobile travel, uh, so that these parks were more accessible. But, you know, the early parks were Civil War parks like Gettysburg and Antietam and so forth. The big ones. The big ones. Yeah. Big ones. And now sort of moving into the American Revolutionary War, and here's Morris Creek being recognized by the federal government as one of the most important battles in American history. It's a national battlefield. The only other one that we have in North Carolina is Guilford Battlefield in Greensboro, and that's it. But outside of southeastern North Carolina, how many people know about the Battle of Morris Creek Bridge. And um, many who do know it through the Polly Slocum story. So 
in that way, I mean, it's still uh, an important sort of avenue toward learning about the history of the battle. Absolutely. And when you go and to— people involved. And people involved. And when you go to Moore's Creek today, it's the first thing you see in the parking lot. It's the closest monument to where you are arriving. And it's unmistakable. And when you see it, you know, you not only have that, that towering statue, but you have the graves in front of them. And it gets you wondering, it gets you talking. And if that's what brought you there or that's what you take away, regardless of whether Polly's story is true, the fact that we're still talking about it is doing a service to the real people who actually were at Moore's Creek. And so that's, that's why these stories are so important. I would encourage everyone to pick up a copy of Chris's book, More Curious Tales. Polly's story is in it. You go into even more detail about some of the new research that you've done. It includes um, several other stories. And if we can get you to do it, I'm sure there's even more curious tales that are out there that you could do. In the works. In the works. Uh, Well, Chris, thank you for being here. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Hunter. Enjoyed it. That's it for this episode of Berguin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll be back in two weeks with our next episode, where we will explore the fact versus fiction in another chapter of Lewis T. Moore's Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear Region. Until then, be sure to subscribe to this podcast by searching Berguin Wright Presents on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. You can also visit us at the Berguin Wright House in Wilmington. Monday through Saturday, we give tours of the site that will expose you to a fascinating history of North Carolina in colonial America. And while you're there, you can also pick up a copy of Stories Old and New of the Cape Fear Region, which is now available in our gift shop. And be sure to follow the Berguin Wright House and Gardens on all social media platforms including Facebook and Instagram, for the latest on what we're doing at the site. As a nonprofit, this podcast and all the exciting projects done at the Berguin Wright House are made possible by donations and community support. Please consider making a donation, or better yet, join our membership program with exclusive perks and tours. All the money raised goes towards the further education and preservation of Wilmington's oldest historic site. For more information, visit our website in each episode's description or at bergwinwrighthouse.com. And thank you so much for your support. This podcast is written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. We would like to thank Durable Restoration Company for sponsoring the podcast this season. And we would also like to take a moment to thank Rachel Ross for our cover art and the National Society of the Colonial Dames of America in the state of North Carolina for their continued support. See you next time on Berguin Wright Presents Cape Fear Legends and Lore.